0: With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: I'm your host, Rez Krebs, and we've got the After Nine political panel on today. Uh, we've got Eric Allen, Peter Ewart, and Art Betke. I want to start out with, uh, a little interesting tidbit here that I was, as I was, I was scrolling through various news articles. I found one from last month that talked about a huge change in, uh, recent polling numbers, and I checked recently that the polling numbers are more or less, uh, the same, in which the Conservative Party of BC has actually begun to, uh, eke out a lead against the BC United Party. Of course, we're a year away from the next provincial election, but I'm really, it's a very interesting development, I would say, considering that the BC United Party you know, formerly the BC Liberals uh, had been in power for many years uh, up until the uh, BC NDP took power in 2017. Um, that, you know, they had re- a, a, a series of really strong premiers, and now they seem to be kind of lost in the wilderness and are having their lunch eaten by, frankly, an upstart party with some members from their, uh, like, for instance, John Rustad used to be a, a BC Liberal. Uh, uh, cabinet minister. Uh, Eric, I mean, what do you think here? I know that we had a long time before the election. Are we, uh, you think that we're going to continue to see this trend that the, the, maybe the conservatives are going to end up in the official opposition status?
2: Well, you know, I guess we've got to go back a ways and uh, to the, uh, the decimation of the B.C. Liberal Party in British Columbia. You know, we we'll go back to Wilson. I think he had five members counting himself and then they got the social credits and the reform and a few other parties together and they called themselves liberals but they're liberals in name only a lot of people call them the coalitionist government and that's what they were for years I don't free know free market guys right like yeah. yeah, I don't think you can still find five liberals in that party maybe you know I mean when you talk about uh, Rustad maybe he is a a liberal, but I, I got a hunch that he was either a conservative or a so-crit. so So I don't know what we're dealing with here other than a bunch of the same actors, just on a different stage, pretending to be something that they're not, but they can't be something else because it doesn't exist. <clears throat> you know, they're not going to all run as social creditors. Maybe that's what they should do, just to revive the social credit party and see if they can maybe maybe get a party that's not fractured like this one is. Um, I noticed that poll, if I read it correctly, it was 800 people that were polled and, uh, which is, you know, a small number, but still accurate within, I think I said 23 or 25% or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. I'll say like, so on the, on the polling aggregator, 338, which puts a bunch of different polls together, they got a plus or minus of about 4%. Yeah. Um, NDP is sitting at 46 Conservatives are sitting at 21, BC United is sitting at 12, and Greens are sitting, sorry, BC United is sitting at 20, and, and Greens are sitting at 12.
2: But I think, you know, we could say with a certain amount of, uh, <laughs> uh, well, the Conservatives and the BC United are going to have to unite and come up with one party, right? This is going to be what we're going to get for the next 10 or 15 years. You know, the, the, uh, the NDP has a solid group of people that vote for them consistently over a period of time. And that doesn't change very much. It really takes something to change that. And they're slowly and slowly taking over more and more of the power. And these people have taken less and less. They need something significant to change the landscape. or We're in for basically uh, NDP socialist type government for the next, in my opinion, 20 years.
1: Hmm. Um. Peter, do you think that Kevin Falcon is just kicking himself right now for having dumped Rustad from the uh, from the BC Liberal caucus at the time for his uh, his questioning the how carbon dioxide and and, and climate change are linked?
3: Well, I, no doubt he's having second thoughts about this whole thing. You know the, the way things are going. You know, like uh, you know the the thing with BC politics. You know, going back uh, many decades. You know the. Uh, Liberals and conservatives, you know, those, those who espouse that, right, and especially the, you know, the big business uh, people and so on, right, they, uh, always or tried to come together in different ways and coalitions between them and all this in the 30s and 40s and so on, and to, to keep the NDP out, or to keep the socialists out at that time, the CCF. Uh, and all that got turned on its head when the, you know, because of, uh, electoral uh system changed the social credit was able to uh, uh come into power and uh for for years the the liberals and conservatives uh you know people who see things that way went behind the uh the the social credit uh but now that you know what's happened is that that's it's, it's fractured again and um in my opinion, right in up in the the north and the central and northern interior and northeast and all this, this is actually going to be a, a good time for independent to run, you know, because um, you, you you see this circumstance of, uh, uh, you know, these uh, the, the BC United and the BC Conservatives are are, are divided, and uh, then you have the NDP, but there, but uh, there's a possibility there, and why that is important is. In my opinion, is because the first impulse of British Columbians back in the late 19th century was uh, to have a uh, electoral system that elected independents rather than political parties, and so that was the that was the first impulse of when uh, British Columbians joined the uh, Canada and so on was to go the independent route. But then that got overturned when, the, you know, the big parties came in from the east and all this and uh, changed the electoral system into the extreme party system that we have now. And um, so uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting from that point of view whether, uh, uh, you know, th- there are going to be some uh, independents run and uh, maybe even have a chance of winning in certain parts of the province, especially up here.
1: That's an that's an interesting point. I'd like to dig into that a little bit later, but I wanted from art, you know, there's this split now, right? What is what do you think is behind the split? Is it is it personality politics? Is there a new interest in a different kind of conservatism here?
4: Well, the uh social credit were originally a uh, coalition of center left, center right, uh and uh then the liberals inherited that mantle and uh, now they've moved to the left there's a lot of um, more conservative politicians when they lose an election they always think they have to move to the left to get elected but that will never work because why would people vote for somebody who's got the same policies as the ones they don't like so uh, it's a suicidal mission to to move to the left if you're a conservative party and uh, the liberals, being more or less a conservative party, just liberal like Eric said in name only, uh, or free market, yeah. But huh. but they uh, they actually became, I would say, more center left than center right. So yeah, there's a split. And uh, what uh, what really triggered it was uh, when uh, Falcon booted Rustad for po- reposting a factual statement about climate. And uh you know in uh, in the left uh, when it comes to climate there's no room for dissension or questions but on the right they're supposed to be open to this kind of stuff so that was a, a very left-wing thing to do so yeah that that colored him right away even if he is still free market and uh, personally center right he's viewed as center left now so uh He's kicking himself, I'm sure, Falcon. Uh, uh, He, he, I think, triggered uh, a move uh, to the Conservative Party and back to conservative roots. And uh, I I think uh, by come
1: next election, that the Conservatives will be the official opposition. That's really interesting. Um, So I want to get into. um, I was just looking at a couple things. One. Let's look at Prince George, Prince George Mackenzie, right? We do have we actually have some some electoral districts shifting, right? So we're going to have Coralie Oaks, who's in Quinnell right now, she's going to get a slice of of Prince George. Um, Shirley Bond, so they you know as of last Friday, Shirley Bond is actually going to run again. Um, uh, and then we've got Shane Brennan. Uh, and Keel Giddens, I believe Keel Giddens is gonna be in Prince George Mackenzie. I believe that's, that's the, the new candidate there, who was again, uh, chosen by the central party, right? When I look at Prince George Mackenzie's last election, um, results, Mike Morris had about 50% of the vote. Let me just pull it up here. Uh, and Joan Atkinson, who ran for New Democrat, had about 34%. If we just go by the polling that we've got now at the aggregate level, which I admit is not necessarily accurate, the BC United Party and the Conservative Party are neck and neck. They're splitting it. That would mean that if if it happens in Prince George and Mackenzie, and and again we have a, a no name person here, right? Someone who's never been elected in both for both. I mean, actually, Rachel Weber probably has better name brand recognition than Kiel Giddens. Right. Right. Rachel Weber being the current uh, head of the Prince George SD57 um, school board and running for BC United. You know, if that happens, it looks I honestly believe that there is a possibility that Prince George could see an NDP MLA, which is crazy to me. Right. Considering what I know about the people who live here. And again, this is like this is a, a, a factor or a, a, a it's a it's manufactured by our electoral process. Uh, I just want to get a poll here on the on the panel. Like, given what you know and understand about how things work in Prince George, and this the fact that we have no incumbent in Prince George Mackenzie, and uh, a faltering BC United Party, do you think it's possible that we get an NDP member of the Legislative Assembly in this riding? I'll start with Eric. Uh,
2: I'd say yeah, it's possible. It's uh, depends how. Uh good the memories are for some of these voters. I mean, I think I remember that it was the Liberals that brought in a prudency and shut down all these mills. And, uh, you know, they also extended the uh, trucks to go from 8 to 9 axles so they could haul more logs of the same number of people. And the mayor of uh, Mackenzie and the people of Mackenzie not very happy That's Joe with Atkinson. the government. Yeah. Well, yeah, They're not happy with them at all. And they may do anything Put anybody in there other than liberals to just show that they're not happy. And, and, you know, from my point of view, that's what you should do. You may not like what's going on, but do you dislike it enough that you're going to do something about it? I personally say throw them out and give them a rest period and uh, see if they want to get more serious about politics. Because otherwise, it's just back and forth, back and forth. I, here in Prince George, feel sorry for the way Mackenzie's been treated. And if I had an opportunity, I know who I'd vote against.
3: Peter? Yeah, I would agree with Eric about the McKenzie thing. Like, McKenzie has really been screwed over in so many ways, right? Uh, You know, it's uh, made a tremendous contribution to the uh, provincial economy, you know, through stumpage and, you know, taxes and uh, production. There's huge, huge uh, wood production there over many years, uh, but it gets left out in the cold, right? And so, uh, yeah, I believe that uh, it's quite possible we could see some upside in that riding, you know, and uh, possibly the NDP could, uh, you know, get, get in there because they have they have a pretty consistent, sli- as somebody else said, a pretty consistent slice of the vote. And when you have the divisions on the other side, you know, the uh, BC United and the Conservatives, uh, yeah, there, there, is a, there is a possibility there. Yeah, I you know, think, because uh, you know you go back to the nineteen nineties and all this. There was there was NDP up here, you know.
1: Yeah, it's a, I'm just looking at the last few elections, and yeah, the consistency there for the New Democrats is, is is pretty high, mid '30s. But it's also the, for for the Liberal Party, it was very consistent too in the '50s, right? And that's a that's a strong that's a strong vote. Art, do you think that one the NDP has a chance? And if they don't, who do you think is going to get elected here?
4: Uh yeah, they do have a chance, uh based on the scenario you presented, but I think the conservatives are surging and they will continue to surge over the next year and I think the conservatives will take it. I think the liberals liberal vote will be greatly reduced as they switch to conservative.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder I wonder about Rachel Weber actually. Um she she gets a lot of press, frankly. Um we all know who she is, right? Um, partly because of her controversial comments at the at the school board, right? Um, and in fact, the the head of the teachers union has come out multiple times asking for her to resign. I think that that's just that'll appeal to conservatives, right? Like that's he's. He doesn't understand that he's benefiting her? <laughs> like, it's, it's kinda crazy. Uh, up next we're gonna talk a little bit about the uh, Get Catla court case that, uh, is gonna change how mining staking happens in, uh, the province. But, uh, right now we'll take a short break. We'll be back after these messages.
5: Hello, this is Boris Hassan. To get a feel on what's happening across the country, listen to
4: Viewpoints for reports, interviews, and documentaries on politics, arts and culture, the environment, housing, and more. Thanks to 30 journalists stationed in the Canadian provinces and territories, local news nationwide.
2: Monday nights at 11 on CFIS 93.1 FM.
5: The Q3 Creative Business Hub is home to the Q3 Community Market. The market has tables available for home-based businesses year-round for greater exposure of your products and services. Reasonably priced in the air-conditioned comfort of the Q3 Creative Business Hub, it's ideal for crafters and independent professionals alike. Reserve your table today by emailing q3building at gmail.com. The Q3 Community Market, Saturdays from 830 to 2 at the corner of Quebec and 3rd.
6: First Student is a leader in student transportation and is excited to be adding to their family of school bus drivers and licensed mechanics. Let First Student put you in the driver's seat. You'll need a full driver's license, clean record, must be safety-focused, and enjoy working with children. Apply online through workatfirst.com or call Christine at 250-900-8220. Apply today through workatfirst.com or by calling Christine at 250-900-8220. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, wind at 15K. A high of 1 with a morning wind chill to minus 14. Clear tonight, wind continuing with a low of minus 11. Sunny on Saturday with a high of 1.
0: Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: We're back when We're to talk about the Get Gatla court case. Uh, so, the online staking system in British Columbia... In order for you to get a mineral claim here, you can just go online, pay a fee, set out this place that you think there's going to be minerals, right? I mean, I'm sure it's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically how it works. Um, and unlike most other systems uh, in which there are natural resource uh, processes going on, there is no consultation with First Nations. And, you know, not to get too nerdy here, but the 2004 uh, court case uh, with Haida set out a duty to consult for the crown in any uh, in any natural resource uh, extraction industries. Um, so they won this court case that will change how the online staking system works. What I'm interested in here is that the judge in his decision found that uh, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, uh, DRIPA is what we call it here in BC, um, doesn't really have any legal standing he called it an interpretive aid rather than an actual piece of, ger- piece of legislation. And Git Gatla is actually back, uh, asking for a court ruling saying that DRIPA, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, which is a piece of law, actually has legal force. It's, it's confusing to me because it's a law, but the judge is saying that there's no legal force. And in fact, the, the, the lawyers for the province introduced that argument during the during the court case that ultimately get Gatla won. Uh, I mean I know this is a bit complicated Peter but you know where do you think uh where do you think this is going to land? And honestly if we're if we're in this era of understanding how indigenous rights are are going to be kind of meshed into uh our own like the 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 BC system as a whole if it's just an interpretive aid then what's the point of having it at all?
3: Uh yeah I would agree with that right you know like uh you know the the whole problem that I find with the uh well both provincial and federal governments is the fact that uh you know like they sort of follow the dictum you know the old liberal dictum of why why do by halves what you can do by quarters and uh <laughs> you, you know the, the, so we're left in this kind of limbo here right Right, I think that the, uh, you know, the UN declaration and all this, uh, yes, it should be put into, uh, put into law, like, uh, and we should, uh and this situation of being sort of in, in endless in limbo like where the government like provincial government is saying with one, one hand over for this on the other hand uh they fight it in courts you know all the way right and uh you know there's a, a there's a real double standard that goes on here and uh, we need, we need we need clarity on this front and uh i think that uh, we should it should be consistent with the un declaration and uh you know Put into, uh, put into practice, you know, like, otherwise you have situations where the Getsala, you know, the First Nation, like, one of the things that prompted them over this whole thing was, uh, environmental mess of a, a mine that was in its territory, you know, that, uh, you know, created all kinds of problems, right? And, uh, uh we need uh we need clarity on this issue, and we need these the the rights of indigenous people to be upheld uh, and when that happens then I think we can see some forward movement in terms of uh you know developing uh um, you know business and industry and so on right but uh, when you just leave things up in the air like this. You know, I, I can understand why the indigenous people get extremely frustrated by uh, what uh, how government operates.
1: Art, you know, the back in the nineties, the treaty process was meant to ensure there was certainty, right, over how things were going to roll out in, in BC. The the term that I'm hearing these days is probably uh, predictability. Um, does does at least implementing a transparent. Um, Let's say, let's say it's DRIPA. And a transparent way for indigenous peoples to be part of these legislative processes lead us to better, better predictability? Uh, uh, I would say not.
4: Uh, it might be predictability in the wrong way or the way you don't want it to be. Uh, is it, now, the undrip, the United Nations thing, does not give uh, First Nations veto power, and I don't believe DRIPA does either. Um, And if it did, then basically you're handing sovereignty over to the First Nations, taking it away. They would be the the ultimate government in B.C. Um, I can't see any government or political party or court uh, handing over that kind of sovereignty to them uh, and the way i see it the way reason that, that uh, the government brought in DRIPA was virtue signaling look how wonderful we are how wonderfully we're treating the first nations people uh, but
0: uh, you, you can yeah, only go so really go far point with there that. when they
1: fight it in court <laughs> yeah
4: yeah, well, you can tell when they're fighting in court that they didn't mean to hand over power to them. So that's you know got to be virtue signaling, anyway.
1: I mean, it's, we got we got to be clear here. Like, it wasn't uh, the the gig Adler wasn't asking for a veto. They were simply asking to be consulted, right? And consultation and well, forestry, they have for a instance, duty to
4: consult under both of those. And okay, online, how are you going to consult online? You know, I, I, online staking to me seems to be ridiculous. I mean. It, yeah, I, I staked a mineral claim you know, many many decades ago oh, yeah? when I was young, me and a friend we found an outcropping of something that turned out to be mostly zinc and uh, we used some dynamite and blasted it open and the assay didn't show much of value and so uh, we staked one claim anyway and then we staked eight more claims around it so nobody else would get in on it and then we sold it for a little bit of money but Nothing ever came of it. But we had to be there. We had to put the stakes on the ground with the little metal tags and everything uh, before we could. uh, And and then you go in and you put it on a map and you register it. There was no online back then. And I would think you should have to stake it on the ground first before you do anything else. So it seems like a strange system to me.
1: Uh, Eric. You know, it's interesting, speaking about this sovereignty thing, uh, in another case, the judge in, in the case, uh, with psyches, um, uh, he called BC, basically crown sovereignty in BC, a legal fiction used to steal land. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and it's funny when judges start saying that kind of thing, you wonder, oh, like there, but he still upheld it, right? He, that's how he characterized it. Um, if this sovereignty is a legal fiction, uh, like where are we going to go from here? I wonder. With the you know, I I believe that this is a positive development. Like yes, people who have lived there since time immemorial should at least have like a phone call from someone. Hey, there's a, there's maybe some minerals in here. What do you think about us developing that? Right. Um, but the I guess the the concern here is like actually about whether, as Art says, this is just virtue signaling or we actually have some meat on the bone in, in terms of this undrip legislation
2: yeah I don't really you know it gets pretty confusing when you <clears throat> try to figure out what's going on uh, I was looking at something the other day that is t- taking place right now and they're trying to get something changed in British Columbia or something but it made reference to had uh, to go back to the king anyway to be certified as being okay. And i got to find that again and, and have another look at like it. In, but in the year 2023. Yeah, yeah. So that's still on the books. I, I think we have this idea that it, it isn't, but it is. And it's still British Columbia. We still have the uh, Governor General that answers to, the, uh, to England, to the King and Queen of England, and he signs off on this kind of stuff as a representative of the Sovereign, country of uh, England so when they came here and put their deal down and said this is British soil I mean in those days only two people could do that one was the king the other one was the pope (laughs) they had the power to make those kind of things now that's never really gone away it's still there and I think that's where they get the idea that it's not legal but it's there type thing it's kind of a fantasy but really it isn't because, <clears throat> as I understand it, the reason they got into this ceded territory thing is that England claimed the land for England, British Columbia. That's why it's called British Columbia. <clears throat> and then later on, when they were afraid the Americans might try to take it over, they gave it back to the natives and said, now we're going to give this back to you with the provisio that you cannot sell it without the okay from the king or from the crown. So that's where we're getting some of this idea that before they can sell something or do something, they have to be consulted and people have to agree to it.
1: I I, I think well, the consultation is regardless of whether or not there is a treaty. Yeah. That's across Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't I don't know about the like. My understanding is that there were very few treaties made in British Columbia, and that's that's why we have this. Let's call it unpredictability. I mean, and like I like to say. The BC government and Canada in terms of their sovereignty over this, this, most of this province doesn't have the receipt, right? Or a treaty would be kind of a receipt, right?
2: Yeah, they, they don't have that, but there's, and so they're there's, I think there's three major, possibly four major treaties that's been negotiated, the rest of them haven't, and so they're in limbo, but if there wasn't some question of, of, who really can say yes or no to an issue? You wouldn't even have a treaty; it would be a, a done thing. What are you? What are you negotiating for? It's our land, but they're That's not. It. They're negotiating. It's so interesting. What, the. the- There's some similarities there between
1: a guy coming over here and planting a pole over in Halifax or wherever and saying, hey, as far as I can see is now for the for the king of England. And this going online and like, hey, there's there's a funny like geological thing there. Maybe I'll just do an online stake around there. Like there's some kind of seems to me that there's some
6: some relationship there. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these messages. The Seniors Resource Center has plenty of programs and support services for those 55-plus. An affordable lunch can be delivered through Meals on Wheels, non-medical needs can be covered through Better at Home, and the Housing and Community Navigator can help locate housing and other valuable resources. Call 250 564 for more information, or stop by the Prince George Council Seniors Resource Center between 9 and 3, Monday
0: through Friday at thirteen thirty Fifth Avenue are you thinking of selling your business it's dave fuller here a business coach and a business broker living right here in prince george the challenge of being a business owner is that much of our retirement funds are often tied up in the business if you are getting ready to retire and sell your business give me a call 250-617-7467 and we can talk confidentially about how much your business might be worth and how you might be able to get that money out of the business and into your pocket again dave fuller 250-617-7467 or check out our website pivotleader.com at pivotleader we help you grow train and sell your
6: business first student is a leader in student transportation and is excited to be adding to their family of school bus drivers and licensed mechanics let first student put you in the driver's seat you'll need a full driver's license clean record must be safety focused and enjoy working with children apply online through work or call christine at 250-900-8220 Apply today through workatfirst.com or by calling Christine at 250-900-8220.
7: The Prince George Potter's Guild has plenty of learning opportunities coming up. Beginner Wheel Level 1, Beginner Handbuilding Level 1, and Try It Out Night's Wheel Throwing are all scheduled throughout the fall and winter sessions, with more to come. Classes are for ages 16 and up, with full details, dates, and registration available on the PG Potter's Guild class page under Programs and Events at studio2080.com. Try it out or take your first step to becoming a potter with the Prince George Potter's Guild at Studio 2080.
0: Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: All right, we're going to talk a little bit about the lower mainland now, Metro Vancouver. So they they have kind of a council down there of, of municipalities that sets development fees across the board. I think it goes all the way to Chilliwack. It's, you know, in order, in order for there to be, uh, to prevent a race to the bottom, right? So that, so that all of these municipalities have more or less the same development fees and therefore they share infrastructure, right? And these fees go into this pot so that there's infrastructure, um, money for infrastructure. It's interesting. They're, they're planning on tripling development fees and the federal minister of housing is, is begging them to stop, to stop this, right? Um, uh, the uh, Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser wrote them a letter to ask them to think twice about these development charge hikes they're proposing to vote on this today actually so they're gonna triple them um, and he's saying well there's this federal money you could be using for this and I guess he's he's claiming that you triple your development fees uh, that's gonna to lead to uh, you know a, a less development happening and I just wonder about that like it's an interesting thing in in current you know, I, I'd say five years ago, triple your development fees. They're still going to be building shoebox condos in downtown Vancouver and selling them to investors overseas, right? Um, right now that may not be the case. And it's, and it's been interesting. You know, I, I, I couldn't find the, the, the reference for this, but there were claims like, you know, immediately after the liberals said, uh, the federal liberals said, okay, we're going to, re- we're going to remove GST on rental unit construction. Uh, there was this, um, there was a huge increase in rental unit interest, right? Um, so if that's the case, then tripling development fees could also result in redu- reducing the number of units being developed, right? Art, I understand, like, you know, it's a growing, it's a growing place, they need more roads, they need more bridges, they need more sewers, they need more water. Uh, should they, should they be trying to figure this out themselves or should they be appealing to the federal government for the funding that sean fraser is offering them
4: well if he's offering they should be appealing for that you know it's it's uh they gotta know that it, it's uh, prohibitive costs and it's not going to help the ordinary working people who want to get into a home uh I hear down there i don't know if it's a home or house there's a big difference between a condo in a high rise and a house on a lot uh, average cost is more than 1.2 million Well, who can afford that? Um, The average household income I heard uh, is something over eighty-six thousand, which means the most expensive they can afford would be in the neighborhood of four hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So, yeah, there's no way they can afford a new house now. And I've also heard years ago—I can't remember or couldn't find it exactly where—but the uh, already the the city. Uh, and other government perhaps uh, costs of uh, fees and regulations and such required for a new home add 60,000 to or is it 90,000 I can't remember to the cost of a new house I mean they require sprinkler systems for all new houses and that's expensive when you put that in and it really doesn't make much difference smoke alarms is what saves lives so uh I I think they got to just start dealing with reality. People just don't have the money. The people who are buying this stuff aren't the people looking for houses. They're looking for investments. Uh, But at the same time, I suggest that the federal minister should be telling his boss to cut the immigration rate. We can't absorb a million newcomers a year into this country. That's a huge part of the problem.
1: It's interesting. I mean, he talks about... Needing immigrants who have the skills, right? Instead of upskilling our deputy prime minister said, "We need all these immigrants so we can build houses for all the new immigrants." Like, give me a break. <laughs> um, so part of this thing, Eric, is is growth paying for growth, right? So that they're they're trying to like load on the cost of of the infrastructure needed onto the new development, and and therefore not increase property taxes on those people who are already living in places that ostensibly are using the the infrastructure that already exists but that also kind of sets up to my mind kind of a a, a maybe it's a double standard like you got you're paying your you're paying your your property taxes for infrastructure right and it's distributed across everyone equally whether you live in a condo or you live in a a, a house right there's there's percentages anyway um But in this case, if you're, if growth is supposed to pay for growth, so all these, these, the new infrastructure being built for these new houses, you gotta pay for the infrastructure up front, and that means that you yourself are taking on this burden and the people who are, who are living there already, they kind of, they get a free ride, right? Like, th- that infrastructure will also benefit them, the roads and the bridges, etc. So I just wonder what you think about, like, growth, paying for growth, this concept that that people who are moving into new construction need to have, like, need to pay an extra amount in order to be able to get access to that, that new house or whatever it is.
2: Yeah, well, you know, if you're, people here have been paying for infrastructure for 40, 50, 60 years. The guy building a new house, he hasn't paid any infrastructure yet. So he's got to pay for 40 or 50 years, which means if the other guy lived long enough, he'd pay for 100 years. But of course, he'll be dead. Somebody else will be paying for it. So you can make an argument. I think locally, like we've got a lot of heavy-duty, expensive infrastructure going up, Upper College Heights and the University Heights. It's going to go on for the next 10, 15 years or something. And the people down in the bowl area and, and the established areas are going to pay a big part of that.
1: Yeah, we're subsidizing that. Yeah, we're
2: basically subsidizing it. So I think they have to find a a new way of uh, looking at that. The other thing is that, contrary to what we might think, we don't have a lot of control over where this stuff is built and how much the infrastructure costs. In fact, quite often we won't even get a number, but we know we're going to get the bill for it down the road. So if a, a developer decides he wants to develop up in uh, say up around the university or something and that water and sewer has to been run down through and behind walmart all the way down to the fraser river cost you a fortune uh they go ahead and do it because it's all those costs are all passed on to the person buying the house and but they have no say where the houses are going to be located
1: but the maintenance yeah. is then passed on to all the existing taxpayers
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Peter your last word. Uh,
3: yeah, no, I would agree with that. You know, there's a there's a problem here, right? In the sense that uh you know what we're talking about here is big uh, big business, big big developers and all this. Uh you know, basically when they when, when they build these things, uh what's not factored in is the infrastructure. You know, the you know the fact that you get uh you know water, parks, sewage, roads, sky train, all that uh, assemble of stuff and uh, you know the, uh, the the problem that I see is that just the whole way that things are going in all this is that housing is way too much in the hands of private big private interests in terms of uh, where it's going and we need we need governments to take a different tack and to, and look at the whole issue of developing nonprofit housing, working together to produce uh, nonprofit housing, like uh, as similar to what happened after the Second World War, when you had uh, all kinds of what they call army houses built, you know. But uh, the way that the way that it's going right now, the the federal government is basically saying that uh, uh, who's going to pay for the uh, all of all of this extra infrastructure and all that? Are uh, like Eric talks about, like uh, you know the people as a whole, rather than the, uh, the, these developers who are, you know, going to m- make a fortune, you know, building these uh, new, new uh, homes.
1: All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back after these messages. Calling
7: all writers, poets, and budding authors. The downtown branch of the Prince George Public Library is holding weekly writing circles for teens to engage in writing activities and explore creative writing with each other. Participants in this free drop-in event will contribute ideas towards a chapbook, which will be celebrated at a galley event on December 12th. Whatever writing style you work in, this is the place to come and meet with like-minded teens. The Teen Writers' Circle meets Tuesdays from 6 to 7, starting November
5: 15th at the downtown Prince George Public Library. The Prince George Hospice Dream Home Lottery is back for 2023. It's your chance at a brand-new custom-built home worth over $820,000. Check out the Dream Home on Monroe Way in University Heights subdivision or go online to hospicedreamhome.ca. The grand prize draw is Friday, December 1st. Nearly 3,000 square feet of custom-built living comfort, the Prince George Hospice Dream Home Lottery. BC Gaming License 141437. Know your limit. Play within it. Check out Creative Space Sunday at Two Rivers Gallery. With Halloween approaching, make your own spooky ghosts and cute pumpkins from recycled home decor material this Sunday at 1. Featuring a new activity each week, Creative Space Sunday is free for members with a nominal fee for non-members. It's a drop-in event with no registration required. Come by yourself, with family, or with friends for Ghosts and Pumpkins the next Creative Space Sunday, 1 o'clock this Sunday afternoon at Two Rivers Gallery. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today, wind at
6: 15K, a high of one with a morning wind chill to minus 14, clear tonight, wind continuing with a low of minus 11, sunny on Saturday with a high of one.
0: This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: We're back with the Friday political panel, we got Art Betke, Peter Ewart, and Eric Allen. Uh, there's an interesting case down in Vancouver. There's this, there's this organization called the drug users liberation front who basically finds high grade, high quantities of hard drugs online, brings them into their, their office in Vancouver, tests them for purity, et cetera, make sure there's no fentanyl in it. Um, and then sells it, sells it to, uh, to people who are, who have addictions to those, to those drugs. um, It's interesting to me, so they were recently, uh, the, the organization, two people were arrested in connection with this, this drug user liberation front. Actually, I love, there's the picture accompanying the article has a little, has a little, one of their little packages of cocaine. They have great branding, by the way. (laughs) Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of see themselves as a compassion club for drug users so they can access safe supply. And I find it really interesting when safe supply, um, is one pillar, you know, of the of harm reduction uh, and getting people off of drugs, actually, um, uh, but safe supply currently is, you know, this diluted stuff, and we're seeing that that those those pharmaceutical grade opiates they're not good enough for people who use opiates, and so they're ending up in the free market, and you know, there's lots of anecdotes, kids are using them, you know. I guess my question here, Eric, is if if you've got this safe supply. That's being done on, in basically the free market. Um, and it's part of a government policy already. Should the government be involved in, uh, cracking down on that? Or should they maybe instead just set up some regulations so that, so that the free market can take care of this?
2: Yeah. <clears throat> good question. I, you know, that's Vancouver, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. So Vancouver having its own charter and its own police. It was the police that made the decision to start laying charges because these people were breaking the law, as yeah, federal the law. law, It's a federal law. Yeah. As the law stood. And uh, so that's their job is to enforce the law. And I don't know if anybody's trying to go beyond that or not. But, yeah, if you have a safe supply and if that's one of your things that you're going to use to uh, try to help these people, then they should be working to get, make that happen as opposed to try to stop it. I don't know. It didn't say here where the money that they made on it went. Whether it just went into their own pocket or went back into the organization or what. So
1: uh, I don't think they have a nonprofit status or. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes. So that's there's that also. So
3: yeah, I don't know.
2: Peter, what do you think?
3: Uh, well, I'm not against the concept of safe supply or drug testing, but uh, but I believe it must be part of an overall. Uh, addiction drug program you know like similar to what uh, has taken place in portugal and and so on you know the government has to be involved in it right we it can't be put into the hands of private organizations who are taking up uh the distribution the selling of drugs and so on to me that's a bridge too far and uh we need if if it's going to go ahead if safe supply goes ahead you know, and the drug testing goes ahead, and all this. You you need it to be regulated by government and run by government in some in some way. You can't just you know sort of be willy nilly, right? That, that anyone can do this because we're dealing with quite dangerous substances here.
1: So we'd have like instead of having BC liquor, we might have BC cocaine. Is that the <laughs> uh, art? You know this this question about this is a the private enterprise kind of coming in and executing uh, government policy. What do you think? Well, you. The government, uh, provincial government has a stated policy that
4: they're going to de- decriminalize drug use and, uh, you know, push the safe supply thing, so. Why not? I mean, society condoning it, the government condoning it. It's like, well, gee, let's get in on it type of thing. Yeah, I'm not surprised that they would get uh, get in on a a private business like this and the drug business. Uh, The the impression they would have uh, from all the indicators is that this is a wonderful thing to do and even even, uh, get them brownie points with the government, you know. Uh, So... I I can't see why the government is upset. I mean, this is
1: kind of a logical conclusion to their policies. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I've been talking a lot about this with uh, folks I know. We we talk about, both in terms of housing, in terms of the, the, the drug epidemic, what to do with people who are already, don't have a house, or are already addicted to drugs. And if those two things are crises right now, What are we doing to address the the production of those addictions and the production of those unhoused people? Right, we talked. We just talked about housing, and um, you know, maybe there's a role for the government. Maybe there is a role for private industry. I I think about for housing, for instance. My grandparents built their first house with their own hands, right? And it's almost impossible to do that now with, uh, as Eric was mentioning, the regulations. In terms of drugs, I mean, I gotta say, like some of those folks down in Moccasin Flats. They're pretty industrious, right? Uh, they're taking matters into their own hands. They're getting roofs over their heads. Maybe that does, maybe that eventually leads to them getting off the drugs. But my question again is, what are we doing if, sure, we got safe supply and we, we hopefully will, will have more of those kind of Riverview 2.0 places like the Redfish down, down in, uh, Porcoquillum. But what are we doing to prevent the people from actually ending up in this situation? Actually, those policies encourages people to get into those situations. I mean that's I, anecdotally, uh, the safe supply stuff with Dilaudid, because it's just not good enough for someone who is already a hardened drug user. Uh, I read a thing from a doctor saying that's ending up at kids' parties, right?
3: like that's why we need an overall program right that has supports and it may may have safe supply and whatever right but have some coherence to it in terms of uh where it's going right now like uh, just willy-nilly uh you know and i i don't think that's the way to go
1: yeah i think safe supply is the cheapest thing to do and that's why they started with it whether or not they're going to actually invest in the other three pillars of that harm reduction strategy but like i say i don't think any of us have actually an answer to why are we creating all these all, all, all these drug addicts all of a sudden right like where is that is that because we don't have communities anymore that support no, each other like
4: too much government
1: like Eric said everything the government touches turns brown
4: <laughs>
1: that's that's a that's a good
2: old a <laughs> yeah that's a that's an
1: old chestnut by now okay we'll take a short break we'll be back after these messages the exploration place has been offering school programming to classrooms across northern BC since 2001 Thanks to an $80,000 grant from the Drax Foundation, school visits and programs are being offered free of charge to Northern BC elementary, secondary, and post-secondary schools. The goal is to support education and skills development in science, technology, engineering, and
5: math. Bookings are still being accepted for the current school year. Teachers can initiate a booking by contacting the Exploration Place education team. The Prince George
6: RCMP would like you to be on the lookout for Joshua Joseph Michael Bowser, wanted for theft under $5,000 and break and enter with intent to commit an indictable offense. He is described as a Caucasian male, five 5'10", 160 pounds, with short black hair, blue eyes, and a tattoo of the name Katie on his neck. If you know the whereabouts of Joshua Bowser, please contact the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300.
5: The Crisis Center for Northern BC is presenting a Safe Talk Suicide Prevention Workshop November 4th at your Prince George Public Library. Learn how to prevent suicide by recognizing signs, engaging someone, and connecting them to intervention resources. This is a free workshop for people ages 15 and older, but registration is limited. To register, call the library at 250-563-9251. Safe Talk, a suicide prevention workshop, November 4th, from 1 to 4, at your Prince George Public Library.
6: The Prince George Council of Seniors Caregiver Support Program needs volunteers who have experience caring for seniors. If you are a retired nurse or caregiver and can offer some time to assist families and friends who are caring for their loved ones, contact the Seniors Resource Center. Wendy is ready and willing to help you through the process. Call the center at 250-564-5888 or email hcn at pgcos.ca. You can also stop at the center at 1330 Fifth Avenue.
0: You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: All right, we're back with uh, our final segment. We're going to talk a little bit about there's a, there's a huge issue with uh, with drought in B.C., obviously. And one of the issues that is kind of a knock-on thing is that a lot of our reservoirs for hydroelectricity are starting to reduce in volume. One of the issues down in the, the Kootenays is that these reservoirs are subject to the uh, a treaty with the united states in which the the water is basically owed across the border we have to continue the water flowing and what's this resulted in people like people who are living on the on the lake having 20 feet of of quicksand instead of a lakeshore uh reduction of the ability to actually um to actually have uh water for res- for uh, for drinking etc you know and i wonder like in this age of of kind of crazy um you know huge climate impacts some of these some of these transnational agreements over on resources probably are going to need to be extremely uh like tweaked right um and i just wonder eric i mean what do you see about the future of things like the the treaty that gov- governing the columbia basin um and the the water flowing apart i mean i wonder also about frankly Softwood Lumber Treaty, right? Like, maybe there, maybe there's going to be a, a reduction in uh, in those tariffs because there's less supply of softwood. I don't know. What do you think about renegotiating these treaties? Talking to me? Sorry, talking to Peter.
3: Okay. Uh, yeah. No. I, at this time, yes, there's negotiations going on, uh, but uh, if, in my opinion, uh, uh, you know, the treaty if, if if the the treaty is not renewed. It apparently go, there's a shift to an ad hoc regime, you know, governing, uh, you know, what's happening with the water and so on between Canada and the U.S. And uh, when I look at, you know, the this problem with climate change, with the drought that's affecting, where we also have floods, right, and so on. I think uh, rather than, uh, you know, just have a continuation uh, of the existing agreement, I actually uh, like the idea of going to an ad hoc system for this period of time to see, just see where things are going, right? Uh, You know, uh, because if, uh, you know, the treaty is uh, reinstated as it is, uh, you know, we could be into a lot of trouble here with this, you know, for example, with the drought thing. Uh, Not to say it couldn't go the other way, but I think we need to we need some space and time you know because it's such a monumental issue right in terms of uh, these dams and the and the lakes and uh you know the power you know the power generation in both Canada and the u s and um so i th- I'm Initially looking at the circumstance there I would say going to an ad hoc regime for at least a period of time would be better than uh, you know either renewing the existing treaty or, or going ahead with it
1: That's interesting you know the 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 treaty and the the dams that kind of were built around this were actually as a result of some catastrophic flooding that happened in the 40s you know trying to manage water. And now we're managing water to a treaty from the last century that, as you say, you know, the climate is changing. So maybe it does need to go to a place where we're m- watching how things roll out. Art, is that a way to go? Uh, boy, it's hard to say. Uh, you
4: have a, a river that flows through Canada, originates in Canada and then flows into the States. So yeah, the United States could not do. Anything really much on their own to control flooding, uh, because uh, I'd say most of the floodwaters came from Canada. Uh, when when you get the the spring thaw on the Rockies, and that's a, quite a bit of Rockies that, that thaws there. Uh, if you have a heavy snow year and then a warm spring, you get a flooding, and uh, so that's why they desperately needed that treaty to save their own. Uh, Cities and that from the flooding, uh, and you know, they under the treaty they're able to call on the Canadians to you know hold back water as necessary. That's not the problem now. Uh, the Canadians are required to let it go, uh, so that's kind of a bad way. Um, we should be able to hang on to our own water, I think, uh, but I don't know that the Americans would ever agree to that because that would hurt them. So. It's a tough one to figure out, um, but as, as the article that I read said, that uh, the, the Arrow Lakes are at a low that has not been reached in more than two decades. So it doesn't sound like this is unprecedented. It seems that this happens. Uh, there's drought years and there's flood years. So,
1: but the I guess the issue is um, it's October, and usually yeah. the lowest the lowest time is in like April. Yeah, after after the winter draws yeah. down. Yeah. Eric, I mean, are we going to get into a fight the United States about this? We can't. It's it's crazy. You can't ship logs across uh, across some of these lakes now, right? And then they've been using that technique for for decades, um, and so we're having an economic
2: impact as well. Yeah. <clears throat> I was just looking just uh, further on in the article. There it says said it was frustrating. This woman or whoever it is talking, frustrating to see Washington's Franklin D. Roosevelt Lake downriver from the Canadian dams operating at normal water, water levels while Arrow Lakes Reservoir recedes. So the water that goes through and is basically drying up on the Canadian side is still fine for uh, staying at the same level on the American side. So, And then we're committed to supply that water even though it gets worse. So they have to have some kind of a solution.
1: I mean, the uh, I'm seeing that the Army Corps of Engineers is like basically. It's funny. It sounds like they're doing a little bit of propaganda. <laughs> they're, they're telling people who live in those historic floodplains where there's been tons of development now to you know watch out. We don't know what Canada's going to do, and so you might get flooded, right? And yeah. and that seems to me to be like very irresponsible, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why would you? Why would you kind of inspire that kind of unpredictability? Amongst people who, like, Canada isn't gonna turn on the tap and flood your house, right? How, how would that, what would that do to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's crazy, we are, we are the mouse sleeping next to the elephant, so, you know, I just, I, I feel like that kinda, of, like maybe the Army Corps of Engineers is using that kind of uh, rhetoric in order to ensure that there's, there's public pressure to maintain the status quo. Politics. Politics. Politics so they can get their way in the negotiations, but pressure on Canada. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoys this, uh, what turn, looks like it's going to be a beautiful sunny day, but a little bit cold. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: After Nine is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis Holt, Darren Guess, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair, with technical assistance from Stephen Smith theme music is by the ebbs listen for a rebroadcast of today's program tonight at 10 and for past shows check out the archives link at cfisfm.com to provide feedback or suggestions for the show please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca
1: This is 93.1 CFISFM Prince George. Proudly supported by community organizations like the Canadian Home Builders Association of Northern BC. Check them out online at chbanorthernbc.ca.